Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty well. It is a slow week of Supreme Court news. Uh, I know we've anxiously been awaiting the decision um, from the Texas abortion case, uh, which was obviously expedited. So the thinking there is that it could come down any day now. We've not yet heard any word from the Supreme Court on that case. But in the meantime, um, we are going to be spending today's episode uh, talking to a special guest, Michael Dreeben. He is a preeminent Supreme Court attorney who's argued 106 cases before the court. And we're going to be talking with him all about his storied career at the Department of Justice. But Natalie, there's some kind of housekeeping news to kind of catch up on in the meantime. There was an orders list on Monday. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so a little docket update. On Monday, the court took up Morgan versus Sundance, uh, which is where they're going to weigh in on whether or not litigants can head to court before heading to arbitration in certain cases. Um, this case specifically involves a Taco Bell franchisee, and it's, there's a question as to whether that franchisee waived its rights to uh, have a wage and hour case heard out of court after already participating in litigation for several months. You know, can you do to court and then go to arbitration? This this is a, a kind of a big question. I feel like this is also just a notable case because, frankly, the docket has been, like, super light on business cases this term. I, I mean, you know, it, there's obviously, like, the abortion case, some very high-interest social impact cases and a lot of criminal justice cases. But when it comes to, like, business cases, we haven't seen a ton, um, you know. So, so this one stood out to me. Um, I will say, you know, Little side note, uh, one of the few other big business-minded cases also involves arbitration, uh, Badger v. Walters, which was heard earlier this month. Um, it was regarding a dispute over the power of federal courts to confirm or vacate arbitration awards. So, so th- this term, while, you know, light on business cases, might be shaping up to give some, like, significant, you know, guidelines to when arbitration should be happening and how it should be happening. Yeah, this one also was notable because I'm reminded of something. I can't remember which Supreme Court attorney said it, but he said there are two types of arbitration cases at the court, um, 9-0 victories in favor of arbitration and 5-4 victories in favor of arbitration. And (laughs) and this one kind of seems to maybe be a little bit different from that narrative, from the exception to the rule, um, possibly because this one's an appeal out of the Eighth Circuit that had basically baked in this requirement that before finding a defendant in one of these wage and hour cases had waived its right to arbitration, they needed to, uh, the plaintiff needed to show that they were prejudiced in somehow by the by the uh, defendant's conduct in the case. And, and obviously the petitioner now, who is the, the, the wage and hour plaintiff, the taco, the former Taco Bell worker is saying that you know, the Eighth Circuit of essentially is elevating arbitration clauses above other contractual clauses, which is not what the Supreme Court has said you're supposed to do. You're supposed to treat it like a regular contract. And so, you know, the Supreme Court, by taking this case, this appeal from this worker um, in reviewing the kind of new requirement that the Eighth Circuit has laid out here, what are they what are they potentially going to be looking at in this case? And could this be, like I said, an exception to this rule in favor of this recent trend of the court reading these arbitration provisions really broadly and, and, and generally siding with, you know, corporate defendants in these cases. It'll be interesting to see. Um, but I think let's now turn to our 
main segment, I want to introduce our guest this week, Supreme Court lawyer Michael Dreeben. Over the course of a 31-year career at the Department of Justice, Dreeben argued 105 cases at the court. From 1994 to 2019, he was the Deputy Solicitor General who was in charge of managing the office's criminal docket at the court. He took leave from the Solicitor General's office in 2018 to aid Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election and obstruction of justice. Following his career in government, Dreeben joined the faculty at Georgetown University Law Center as a distinguished lecturer and became a partner at law firm O'Melveny & Myers, where he's now the firm-wide co-chair of the white-collar defense and corporate investigations practice. Last week, Dreeben argued his first Supreme Court case as a private practitioner, bringing his argument tally to 106. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's a pleasure to be here. So I, I just kind of want to, before we dive into to the conversation, I want to kind of start at the beginning and ask you, you know, when you began your legal career, did you have in mind that you would become, you know, one of the most prolific Supreme Court advocates in the country? I most certainly did not. I graduated from law school, clerked for a year, and thought that I was going to be a trial lawyer, and I most wanted to go to the Department of Justice. Uh, I was inspired by a movie called Prince of the City, which depicts uh, prosecutors in the Southern District of New York and the dedication that they had to the public interest and the exciting work that they did. And that's what I wanted to do. Unfortunately, the Department of Justice was not particularly interested in hiring me at that moment. So I went into private practice. And later, after a couple of friends of mine had joined the Solicitor General's office, I threw in an application as a flyer, got an interview, and heard nothing for about eight months. And I figured that I was not actually what they were looking for. But they did ultimately hire me. I thought I would go for a couple of years, uh, burnish my credentials with a Supreme Court argument or two, and then go back out into private practice. And I ended up staying for 31 years. I sort of thought of myself as Hans Castorp in Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, who came to an institution, thought he would leave in a couple of months, and was there for seven years. I actually more than uh, quadrupled that. <laughs> and you had more than just one or two arguments, uh, but I- I'd like to hear about your first argument. Uh, could you tell us how that went? Yeah, that was a exciting and unexpected development. I got to the office and I was assigned a case called United States versus Halper, which was one of the last cases that went straight from a district court to a Supreme Court hearing under the direct appeal statute. And it involved a double jeopardy issue where a, a medical professional had been convicted of a crime and then sued under the False Claims Act and uh, asked to pay over $100,000 in uh, false claims penalties for a very minor fraud that I think involved $565. Halper did not show up at all to defend his uh, win in the district court. So the court appointed another first-time Supreme Court advocate to brief and argue the case as an amicus in support of the judgment. That advocate turned out to be John Roberts, future Chief Justice of the United States. So we each briefed the case, and I spent a very nervous month 
walking around the block with my wife, trying to reassure myself that I would not walk into the court and have a trap door open and I would just disappear. And I think my opponent was kind of nervous too, because he showed up, we were both white as a sheet, we're sitting there waiting for the argument to begin. And the courtroom is a very imposing, intimidating and august place with its large marble columns and its ornate uh, marble friezes and its uh, pageantry. And I think we were both a little frantic. And John Roberts leaned over to me right before the court was about to come in and in a very hoarse voice whispered, do you want to settle? <laughs> it was a little late by that point. So I had to stand up uh, and give my argument. Uh, Justice Scalia made a joke at my expense about 25 seconds in, the courtroom rocked with laughter and away we went. So I, I take it maybe not a favorable result in the end for, for the government? or, or. No, when I got to the Solicitor General's office, I was extremely moved by the idea that uh, here was the most powerful government in the history of the world, and it would go up in front of its court, and the court could rule against it and reject the executive branch's view. And I thought that was a real tr tribute to our democracy and the strength of the rule of law. And I felt that way right up until the court ruled against me unanimously <laughs> in that very first case. Well, I suppose had it turned out differently, you would be sitting in the center of the Supreme Court as Chief Justice, and, and we'd be talking to, to John Roberts right now. But <laughs> I, I figure he made it to the Chief Justice about 20 years after our first argument. So if uh, I'm on any kind of a trajectory somewhat behind him, I might become chief in about 2085. Uh, you never know. Okay, so it, it sounds like it started off, you know, a, a, bit, a bit in a bit of a rough patch, a 9-0 loss, but obviously, you know, you turned, you were able to sharpen those advocacy skills over a 31-year year career at the Department of Justice and the Solicitor General's office. And I just wonder what... What are some of the ways in which you did sharpen your advocacy? What are some of the biggest lessons you learned appearing at the bench so many times? Or before the bench, rather. I, the Solicitor General's office is the best crucible in the world to learn how to be a Supreme Court advocate. All of the lawyers uh, in the office are... Um, compulsively interested in the court's work, love to talk about it, uh, are monitoring all the aspects of the docket, and are well honed in how to argue a case in front of the Supreme Court. You go to a lot of cases, you watch what other advocates do, and you go through the moot court process at OSG, which is uh, you know, an, an amazing and somewhat uh, daunting experience at first. Um, but over time, you learn that these people are trying to help you and they know how to do it better than anyone else. Um, there were a lot of catchphrases that people would use around the office to uh, kind of orient your preparation. I mean, go for the jugular is sort of a classic legal phrase for all phases of activity, but people have really refined that into uh, guidance such as front-end load all of your best points, not only in the early in the argument, but also 
early in a paragraph and early in a sentence. So you really start thinking about how to crystallize your points and express them as clearly as possible. And somewhere about a third of the way through my oral argument career, I decided to go without notes. And that was not as a kind of gesture of, you know, overconfidence because I was not overconfident standing there. I was confident. Um, But that was only because I had gone through the process of preparing and I think I knew what to expect. Going without notes was a way of saying, look, I know the centerpiece of my case. I may not know everything about it. There are details that I would forget and that you could only pick up by looking at a piece of paper. But I want to be engaged with the court. I want to answer the court's questions, listen to what they're saying, maintain eye contact, uh, read the room. And so it was a way of standing up and saying, I'm here to talk about whatever you want to talk about. And I'm going to engage uh, with your questions. I'm going to do the best that I can to answer them. I know you mentioned that that's not for overconfidence, but I have to say that's that's fairly impressive. But it's such a good point about having to connect with the justices. Um, I, you know, I know we've seen some some movement with how the f- the argument format is, uh, and, and you just recently argued a, a case. Has that changed? A tweak, kind of like your your the way you go about things. The new format for the court does require some uh, psychological readjustment. The Supreme Court is the most intimate court that I've ever appeared in. The podium was very close to the justices. You could really see subtle facial gestures. You could see them interacting with each other. And in, in COVID, with the pandemic, the court has pushed the podium back another 15 feet or so. And it's still close enough so that you can see the justices as people, but you see them as a tableau. Uh, You have more peripheral vision that includes all the justices at one time. And you are further back and away from them. And I think that decreases some of the intensity and the very focused, locked-on connection that you have when you're standing close The court has also altered the way in which it asks questions. It slowed down the pace a little bit. It's brought Justice Thomas into the conversation, which I think is an incredibly welcome development. I have always been dying to know what was on his mind uh, during the arguments, and now you find out. I did have one very dramatic interchange with uh, Justice Thomas during the years when he was largely silent, as uh, arguing a case about uh, cross-burning in mm-hmm. Virginia versus Black. And the question in the case involved whether cross-burning was constitutionally protected. And the United States was arguing it could be, but when it's done to intimidate, it's not. And we were trying to draw the line between those two. And I got involved in a very intricate discussion with Justice O'Connor about cross-burning and whether it was a threat, even if it wasn't imminent. And all of a sudden, Justice Thomas's voice rolled across the courtroom, and he has a very deep, resonant voice. It was likened by one Supreme Court reporter to the Luke, this is your father voice. (laughs) And it 
took over the courtroom and we were all stunned and we turned to look at him and he said to me, Mr. Dreben, I think what you're trying to do is fit cross-burning into our jurisprudence. And what went through my mind is, yes, that's sort of my job. And he said, you can't do that. It really was uh, the instrument of a reign of terror throughout the South and you're understating its impact. And I tried to push back gently and he went on and it totally changed the tone of the courtroom. And from there on out, nobody was going to defend cross-burning as a mm -hmm. subtle expression of, uh, you know, protest or racial animus. It was a threat. And so his capacity to uh, influence the dynamic of the argument is now present in every case, not with the same drama, perhaps, but, uh, but he's now talking. And the other justices understand that because they have this overtime where they go justice by justice, they can talk as long as they want. It's less pressure to interrupt and more opportunity for a sustained dialogue. And it means as an advocate, you have to be prepared to go deep. You can't mm -hmm. get away with a superficial answer and hope that some other justice will rescue you in a hurly-burly you know, short time interchange. They know that they can can pursue their arguments uh, and questioning as deep as they want to. And so you as an advocate have to be ready to go along with them. And what about appearing before the court as a private practitioner versus a government attorney? What are some of the key differences there, if any? So I had a little bit of a soft landing after being an advocate for the government 105 times. My 106th was also an advocate for a government, the city of Austin. city of Austin mm -hmm. doesn't quite have the same relationship with the Supreme Court as the United States does. It doesn't have an office up there, and it doesn't have the kind of sustained relationship uh, through, through cases. But nonetheless, it allowed me to still take a slightly broader view not just as an advocate in a particular case, but as a governmental unit that is one of many governmental units around the country. We were supported by states, we were supported by other municipalities. And I took into account that broader vision in framing the arguments before the court. And I actually think that's a habit that's valuable and hard to lose. Um, I, I am going to argue another case uh, soon for a private client where I'm not representing any government. But I still think that the the best advocacy for the court recognizes that you're part of a process of developing the law by the highest court in the land. And the most credibility um, that you will have is when you participate in the discussion on that level, prepared to help the court not only rule for you, but announce a rule of law that makes sense and that responds to all the different concerns that the, the justices have to have. So I plan to take that with me uh, for any client that I represent. You've already told us some really just amazing moments that you've had before the court, but do you have a favorite memory um, looking back, you know, or arguments, or, or perhaps a, a favorite case? You know, I have a lot of cases that I remember for different reasons, some for uh, triumph, some for defeat. But one that I wanted to highlight for you is uh, Turner versus United States, because it's a close to home case for Washington, D.C. It involved a horrific 
group murder of a elderly woman in Washington, D.C. in 1984. And I lived here in 1984, and it horrified and electrified the community that a murder like this could happen in broad daylight in a neighborhood where uh, Catherine Fuller was dragged into a garage, uh, tortured and murdered by a large group of people, and no witnesses came forth. Nobody saw anything. And the police launched an incredibly extensive investigation and ultimately identified um, a group of people who had engaged in this murder together, and two of them ultimately testified at trial, and uh, a group of defendants were convicted of it. Years after the fact, it emerged that the United States Attorney's Office had been aware of other people who had confessed to the crime, other people who were witnesses and could support a theory that it wasn't a group attack at all. It was an attack by a very limited number of people and the evidence against the defendants that was used to convict them was contradictory and too weak to support this, uh, this crime. And it had echoes of the Central Park um, beating uh, that uh, was prosecuted in New York and that ultimately fell apart based on Brady violations. The Supreme Court granted review in this over the government's op, and many people thought they're taking it to reverse uh, to show that the United States has to live up to its obligations to disclose exculpatory evidence, and it won this conviction improperly. And I dived into the case and became immensely familiar with the facts. The prosecutors that had worked on the case were there to uh, provide amazing amounts of detail, as was the criminal division. And I ended up building a chart, um, not quite Homeland-like, but it had (laughs) pictures and names of all the defendants. We visited the crime scene numerous times. And by the time I got up to argue the case, I never would have known it as well as the trial prosecutors, but I knew it better than any other case that I had worked on. I knew the names of all the witnesses, all the defendants, all the nuances that went into it. And I got to do two things in the case. One was to demonstrate that the prosecution was valid uh, and that the connections of the evidence were really unshakable. But I also got to tell the court that we have learned from that experience and the Department of Justice now does engage in um, disclosure of the kind of information that at the time we were not disclosing. And I wanted to make that statement because I always viewed the job of the criminal deputy to be to reassure the court that we want valid convictions, but we also want to achieve justice and we play by the rules. And that case was a uh, an opportunity to do that. That's interesting. It, it kind of um, brings me to my next question, and it's about a recent law review article that you wrote on the subject of not necessarily, um, you know, exactly what you were talking about, but the subject of almost confessions of error or changing positions um, in pending cases at the at the U.S. Solicitor General's office. And I guess the background here is that generally, as a rule of thumb, the government is presumed to kind of continue some of the positions that a previous administration take in 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 cases. Now you lay out a number of reasons why the Solicitor General's office 
um, should be more open to revisiting um, or changing positions that they inherently disagree with. I, I don't want to characterize your your argument too much, and I want to kind of let you explain what you, what your central kind of thesis is in that in that article that I think is really interesting. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, I wrote the article uh, because we were about to uh, go into a change of administration and questions always arise of will one administration abandon the positions that are taken by another. And I think the going in presumption that I always had at the office was once the Solicitor General takes a position, it is a heavy burden for anyone to suggest that the Solicitor General uh, revert to a different one. And that is in large part because of institutional continuity and credibility before the court. And I thought of it as almost an internal stare decisis rule, like what the courts follow. Uh, Stick by a precedent unless there are exceptional reasons that justify overcoming um, that institutional continuity. And when I dived into the topic, I found myself persuaded that we had been too wedded to institutional loyalty, to prior positions, when circumstances might arise where you conclude the prior position was wrong legally, not as a matter of policy, but just struck the wrong balance. And I wanted to put out there the reasons why the executive branch is not subject to the same sort of stare decisis considerations that the judiciary was and explain why I thought that. And to an extent, I think administrations always change positions from prior administrations when they feel strongly about it. And I don't think the Trump administration was particularly shy about doing that. And I think that the word that I wanted to have the Biden administration aware of was there are good reasons if you conclude that the prior administration positions strayed from a proper vision of the law, don't be too reluctant to change them. And I think that, (laughs) I I, want to give you all the credit, but I think that that idea has been catching on more and more, as you mentioned, with the Trump administration and now the Biden administration. We've seen them change positions um, in in a number of cases and potentially more more to come. But I, I think that about does it for us today, Michael. This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for coming on and, and, and talking us through your your very storied and, and impressive uh, legal career as a Supreme Court attorney. Thank you, Jimmy and Natalie. I appreciate the opportunity. And I think that just about does it for us, Jimmy. Uh, next week, off week, uh, I hope everyone and all our listeners uh, have a, has a very happy Thanksgiving in the U.S. to our U.S. listeners. Uh, and Jimmy, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Thank you, Natalie. Same to you. And good luck to our producer, Steve, who's endeavoring to uh, cook the the Thanksgiving turkey this year. So (laughs) shout out to him. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney, special guest, Michael Dreven, contributing reporter this week, John Steingart. And music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening.